Hello, and welcome to a brand new season of Data Today, brought to you by Zulka. I'm your host, Dan Klein, and I look after everything data and AI at Zulka. We're living in a world of opportunities, but to fully realize them, we have to reshape the way we innovate. We need to stop siloing data, ring-fencing knowledge, and looking at traditional value chains. And that's what this podcast is about. We're taking a look at data outside the box to see how amazing individuals from disparate fields and industries are transforming the way they work with data, the challenges they're overcoming, and what we can all learn from them. In season two, we're exploring how we can use data to save the world. From helping people discover their history to combating fake news, we're going to be covering a lot of ground. It's great to be back, and I'm excited to say that we're going to be starting off our new season with a bang. But what kind of bang exactly? Well, hopefully one that doesn't involve testing nuclear weapons. The mid-20th century saw the highest number of nuclear tests in history, as the powers on both sides of the Cold War prepared for things to turn hot. Since those days, large strides have been made in almost completely ending nuclear tests, and the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, CTBT, played no small part in that change. Since the treaty opened for signatures in 1996, it has received almost universal support, gaining the buy-in of 187 countries. There have only been 10 nuclear tests since 1996, signalling a profound cultural change in how the world sees nuclear weapons and nuclear testing. So this begs the question, how do we even detect nuclear explosions? What data is important? With a whole planet to cover, how do you make sure we don't miss anything? My guest today is Megan Slingard, Chief of the Software Applications Section in the International Data Centre at the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty Organisation, CTBTO. Based in Vienna, Megan has worked in nuclear explosion monitoring for more than 10 years and is really at the coalface of the monitoring work that the organisation does. Megan is from California originally and didn't start out her career wanting to do the work that she now does. There's a story about how I got into electrical engineering doing signal processing, but once I was doing that, I got pulled into nuclear explosion monitoring because they needed to somebody to look at seismic data. So I was doing analysis of seismic data to help with what we call the aftershock problem, because if you're looking for nuclear explosions, a lot of the times nuclear explosions are underground events, underground nuclear explosions, like North Korea putting things in a mountain. And you need to tell the difference between an earthquake and an explosion. And when you're looking at things, a lot of what you're looking at is going to be aftershocks because there's a tons of earthquakes. And when you have an aftershock sequence, all of a sudden you, instead of having like a hundred things to look at in a day, you're going to have like 300 things to look at. So we have to come up with some techniques to help out the analysts that are looking for events. And that's how I got pulled into it. So I was originally um, a very serious musician, and I had a fantastic math teacher in high school, and I really liked math and physics as well. But then I was visiting the P3 
Peabody Conservatory of Music when I was looking at colleges and started to think about where to go. And they had a program there in recording arts, and they used the word electrical engineering to describe that program, meaning signal processing. And I was like, that's what I want to do. So I decided I would study electrical engineering with the goal of designing hearing aids. I did an internship with a a hearing aid company during the research on how to do directional hearing aids. When I graduated, though, that company was doing a hiring freeze, so it was bad timing, and I looked for another job, and I took a job at one of the U.S. national laboratories, Sandia National Labs where I initially worked on image processing for a camera that went on the space shuttle. So that was pretty fun. And then when it was announced that the space shuttle program would be ending, I started looking at other options and saw the job advertisement for the position in the nuclear explosion monitoring group, looking for someone to do the seismic analysis. And I thought that sounded really interesting. When you were doing music, what were you playing? I, I play piano, flute, and organ. <laughs> Just. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, it's very cool, very cool. Talk me through the interdisciplinary nature because it rather sounds like CTBTO has kind of lots of different people in it. So what are the disciplines you might expect to see in CTBTO when it comes to things like nuclear testing? So you're right. It's a very interdisciplinary field. We have the goal of being able to detect and describe all nuclear explosions anywhere on the planet, underground, underwater, in the atmosphere. And to do that, we need a wide range of people. We have geophysicists, uh, we have oceanographers, we have nuclear physicists, we have nuclear chemists. And then we have what I call the indoor scientist and the outdoor seismologist, because we have the people going outside to work in the stations and then the people sitting inside in the air-conditioned building analyzing the data. But we need all of us to get the job done. And all the diplomats, because they're also super important to the people working the more diplomatic side of thing, working it so that we can install these stations in all these countries and ensure the smooth transmission of data. So my team is part of the International Data Center. At CTBTO, we have three main technical divisions. We have the International Monitoring System, which builds a network and maintains the network. We have the International Data Center, which processes the data. And we have on-site inspection. Once the treaty goes into force, the on-site inspection team would have the power to go in and be boots-on-the-ground analysis of a suspected nuclear test. So my team lies within the International Data Center, and I'm the chief of software applications, and I have the scientific methods team and the software development team underneath me. So we think a lot about how to advance the science, what scientific techniques we should be using to do our best job of analyzing and understanding this data, and then we build software to do that. I think we have the most fun job of all. <laughs> oh, excellent. That's what I'd love to hear, right? Talk me through the guts of, let's call it, capability that you have in terms of this listening and understanding what's going on on the planet. Talk me through that system. 
So we have what we call the International Monitoring System. This is our global network of sensors designed to detect nuclear explosions. So it consists of seismic, hydroacoustic, infrasound, and radionuclide stations. And it covers the globe more or less uniformly so that we can monitor all parts of the planet. So the seismic stations are optimized for detecting underground tests, underground explosions. And we have 50 stations sending data continuously and then another 120 that send it on demand when they're in the neighborhood of an event. How many stations are we talking about on the planet? We have 170 seismic stations. So that is a lot of data coming in. Now, if you talk to people in the earthquake community, we actually have a pretty sparse network compared to what they're used to working with. But that's because we really have the mission of monitoring in a global way, not just for a seismically active region. So you've got all this data coming in. You've got stuff that's event-triggered. You've got stuff that's just streaming data. I mean, how do you handle all of that? I can't imagine the setup here because you've got two major cohorts of data coming in at you. How do you take all that data in and use it? Let me back up just a second because we talk so much about the seismic data. I want to make sure people know that we also get hydroacoustic data. So we have 11 stations that are underwater, stations listening to everything going on in the ocean, which in case you don't know, it's like super noisy down there. There's a lot going on. There's underwater volcanoes, there's shipping traffic, there's whales, there's a lot happening. Then we also have infrasound, which is low frequency sound waves. These are below the threshold of human hearing. So our sensors are hearing things below 10 Hertz. And again, there's actually quite a lot going on in that space, but we just don't hear it. But you can hear bolides, meteors, you can hear volcanoes, you can hear explosions, uh, you can hear rocket launches. So there's quite a lot going on in that uh, frequency band as well. Sound travels very far in that frequency band. So we have 60 infrasound stations. And those are what we call the waveform stations. So seismic, hydro, and infrasound are the waveform stations that serve us continuous data. And then we have an entire other category of data because those waveform stations can tell us that there was an explosion. They can tell us how big it was, they can tell us where it was, but they cannot tell us one very important question. And that is, was this a nuclear explosion or not? Maybe it was just a big chemical explosion. Or a submarine. Or a submarine, exactly, which we have used our data to help find when the San Juan accidents occurred off the coast of Chile. But we have radionuclide stations to monitor for the presence of radionuclides that indicate that something was a man-made event. And we have 80 stations that detect particulates and 40 stations that detect noble gases. And so the radionuclide stations are really the smoking gun of our network that lets us know for sure if something was nuclear.
With so much data flowing in from our noisy world, it seems like it would be a really difficult task to work out which bang is the kind of bang that the CTBTO should be paying attention to. The last time a nuclear test was conducted was in 2017, when North Korea dropped a hydrogen bomb in the range of 100 to 370 kilotons. It was North Korea's sixth test since 2006. To give you a bit of context, the atomic bomb that the US dropped on Hiroshima had 15 kilotons worth of power. Hydrogen and atomic bombs are different, but the comparison gives you an idea of the potential for devastation that still exists in our world today. Of course, you can go on the CTBTO's website and read all about the 2017 test. They provide facts, figures, and even information about how many of the test stations picked up the blast. We're going to talk a little bit about transparency and data sharing later on, but for now, let's explore the next steps. Once all the triangulation is done and you've pinpointed a location of interest, what then? The analysis can start in either way. It's possible it starts with a radionuclide detection and then we search for a bang that matches it. But most of the time, we get a detection from our waveform network and say, oh, this looks interesting. Let's see what's going to happen here. If we see some radionuclides that support that this is something man-made. We all hope for a, a world where we don't have nuclear tests. So given that there's not, dare I say it, not very many nuclear tests going on, I'm sure there's quite a lot of earthquakes and there's things going bang and there's the odd submarine that goes bang. I'm sure that's going on. So is most of your work then just sort of finding the false positives and discounting them? in some senses. How does the organisation respond at that point, almost that critical juncture where you say, this is possibly not a false positive, it's possibly a real thing? Because I can imagine that the organisation almost steps up a gear. Take me into the minds of this control room of CTBTO. How does it feel? What does it look like to be inside it? So it probably means that one of three scenarios has occurred. Either we detected a suspicious event on our waveform sensors or we detected radionuclides on one of our radionuclide stations, or there was an event in the media that has led us to go take a second look at everything, or a combination of the above. So in any of those scenarios, our analysts would start reviewing the events built by our automatic system and refining their understanding of the location, depth, and magnitudes of the events built by the waveform signals. If we have a radionuclide detection, they would be reviewing that to look again at the radionuclide spectra and the signatures of that. Just to give you a sense of timescales, seismic waves travel the fastest. So within 22 minutes of a bang, seismic waves would have reached the farthest station on the Earth. So that's pretty quick. The next signals that you'll probably start to see are from either the hydroacoustic or the infrasound, depending on location and how close you are to a sensor. But sound waves in the ocean travel at about 1.5 kilometers a second, which is a little bit more than four times faster than air. So generally, it's an hour or a few hours before you start to see things on the hydroacoustic and infrasound sensors. 
And then it will probably be days before you see radionuclides arrive at a station because they just travel on the normal winds of the atmosphere. So we have the automatic system, then we have the human analysts that review things. And then if there's an exceptional event, my team will also get calls in. My team has the expertise to do more advanced analysis methods. For example, if it's an underground explosion, we would characterize the moment tensor of the seismic event to better understand the seismic movement at the source and the depth of the event. Why is that important? Because most shallow earthquakes are still much deeper than humans can dig. So it helps <laughs> us get a better understanding of whether this is man-made or not. I can imagine then you also take in external data sources. I mean, you mentioned there with the radionuclides and the wind, you take in like weather feeds and that, I assume. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the other types of analysis my team does is we do what's called atmospheric transport modeling. And this is where we answer the question, where would the winds be carrying any radionuclide signals? So where would they be moving? What stations would be likely to see them next? And the flip side of that, we can also ask and answer the question, where did the air that is currently on top of my station that had radionuclides in it, where is the likely source of these radionuclides? And so we do atmospheric transport modeling to help us figure out the source and to figure out what stations are likely to get detections. Your mission here is to make the world a safer place in some senses, specifically around nuclear testing. Given the data sources that you've described, is there other places that could potentially use this richness of data? Is there a thought about increasing the mission here or just the acoustic data within the sea floor, right? And that in itself is really interesting, no? Absolutely. So this data is incredibly powerful. I mean, we have such a unique data set here that it's this global data set and we do share it with others. I think we do some really powerful things. So we give data to several tsunami warning centers so they can use it for their processing. We also have a program called VDEC, V-D-E-C, that you can read about on our website. This is our way to share our data with the research community. So we have tons of agreements with researchers at different universities who are using our data to study things like climate change, whale migrations, predicting monsoons in India, and all sorts of other things that I didn't even realize that this kind of data can necessarily be used for, but it, it can. The CTBTO have over three quarters of a million waveform events saved in their archive. They also have something many researchers crave, a large data set spanning over 30 years. It's brilliant to hear that they make their vast archives available to other teams that might be trying to prevent damage from earthquakes, tsunamis, and other natural disasters. Anyone is able to go to VDEC and request data from CTBTO. There is no charge associated, and they just ask nicely that you credit them as a data source. During the huge March 2011 earthquake and tsunami in Japan, 
Data collected by the CTBTO helped local authorities issue timely warnings that allowed many people to escape to higher ground. They've also lent their hydroacoustic data to scientists examining ice sheet breakup at the poles. Megan's work is purposeful. It feels like directly and indirectly, the CTBTO makes a real difference in our world. It's a really amazing field because here we are using science and data to add robustness to a treaty. We have the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, but it's not just a treaty of words and agreements. It's a treaty with a verification regime. So everybody knows that everybody knows what people are doing and that you can't test in secret. And I think this has really helped establish a global norm and basically say, if you want to be part of the global world, this is just not something we do anymore. We don't do nuclear testing anymore. And I think the power of data is also illustrated by the fact that even though the treaty isn't in force yet, because we're still waiting for a few key ratifications from some of our countries, it has established a global norm that says we don't do this. Since the advent of nuclear testing in 1945, there have been over 2,000 tests conducted. The treaty opened for signature, as I said, in 1996. And in the 2000s, only one country, North Korea, has breached the norm and tested nuclear weapons. So there has been a profound shift in global sentiment. And I think having the data to really add robustness to the treaty is a key part of that. I can't resist jumping back in here to comment on this profound point that Megan is making. She's saying that the CTBTO has helped to create a culture where it is not acceptable to conduct nuclear tests and that the vast majority of the world has taken notice. In 1961, JFK famously described nuclear weapons as the sword of Damocles, hanging by the slenderest of threads, capable of being cut at any moment by accident or miscalculation or by madness. We may not be in a world free of nuclear weapons, but it doesn't feel like we stand on the precipice of ruin in the same way we did back then. Now, we look to climate change as our immediate threat. Things have changed. But back to our conversation. When Megan and her team hear something that they suspect might be a nuclear explosion, what do they do? So every day we have all this data streaming into the IDC. And every day we need to produce a list of events that we saw. The data comes into what we call our pipeline. So first, the waveform data comes in and we look at the waveforms at each station. And we have some algorithms to identify if there's signal arriving that step is called detection. Now, of course, sometimes it's just noise or a signal, not really of interest, but we have to set our thresholds pretty low because we don't want to miss anything. So we get lots of detections. Then 
we take a step back and we look at the pattern of detections across the network and try to solve for where an event must have been located to have generated the arrivals that we saw at the stations. So this is the triangulation part. And it's pretty easy if you think about having three stations and you know what time something arrived at three stations and you're backing out where an event must have happened. Now, if you think about having hundreds of stations and lots of false detections and the possibility of multiple events happening at the same time, you realize that it's actually not such an easy problem. But we do it anyway, and we get some automatic list of events. So talk me through that triangulation piece, because it's three-dimensional triangulation, and you have a plane of sensors. You don't have three-dimensional sensors, certainly in terms of Earth depth, I suspect. You haven't buried something in the magna core the last time I looked. No, not yet. Not yet. Uh, okay. To do this well, you need really good velocity models. So we're always trying to improve our velocity models to understand the speed at which seismic waves travel at different parts of the Earth. It's not an easy problem. We're actually in the process of evaluating a new associator that was developed just for us, which uses machine learning to learn from the past and do a better job of recognizing events. Because when you're having so many detections, what you want to be able to do is grab all the ones that fit together, build the events, and clear them out so you can leave the rest of the detections to look again at and the quicker you can pull things out, the better. This actually comes back, it relates to my original research problem that I did when I joined this community, which was I was looking at better ways to find aftershocks. And aftershocks, you want to basically just pull them out as quickly as possible so that you can associate the rest of the arrivals correctly and not miss a nuclear explosion that just happened to happen at the same time as aftershocks were going on. And then the analysts have to look at it because they still need to tidy it up. The automatic system does the best it can, but they really still need to tidy it up. And they also scan all the raw data again just to make sure nothing was missed by the automatic systems. And at this point, we have about 150 events a day. Next, we do automatic screening to try to sort out those that are clearly earthquakes and leave a shorter list of events that could be man-made. So how do we tell the difference? It's actually pretty easy to tell the differences between signals from earthquakes and explosions. Explosions are bursting outward, so they generate a whole bunch of compressional waves. Earthquakes usually involve the Earth sliding against itself, so they tend to generate a lot of shear waves. The compressional waves travel faster than the shear waves. So when you're sitting at a seismic station, listening to everything that comes by, first you receive the compressional waves, then you see the shear waves, and the ratios of those amplitudes tells you a lot about whether something was an explosion or an earthquake. If you're looking at the pictures, it's really pretty easy to tell the difference. One thing I should say, is that it's actually quite important to understand that our role in the world is to gather this data and analyze it 
but we give the final determination of whether something was nuclear or not to our member states. We give them all the information, we train them, we give them our data, we give them our software, we give them everything they need to do their own analysis so that they can do the determination for themselves about whether they think something is suspicious and would ultimately want to call for an on-site inspection. But that is not our role, interestingly enough. Indeed. So your role here is actually about being fully transparent. As someone who advocates for full transparency in everything we do in data and AI, I love this idea that you have complete transparency and that the member states have complete access to this. And if we come back to the conversation about a cultural norm, creating that cultural norm through making the data available and providing falsely on how you've processed it, that's incredibly powerful. If there's one final takeaway that we should leave with this interview, with this lovely conversation today, Megan, for all those data aficionados out there who are possibly even more excited than we are about this sort of stuff, what would you want that takeaway to be? I actually think I want it to be about transparency in the way that that can affect behavior. I think the story of CTBTO is a really powerful story of how data can bring transparency and transparency affects behavior. Our amazing data resources allow the CTBT to have affected global norms even though the treaty isn't yet in force because people know that they can't hide what they're doing or deceive the world. And I really love working in this space. That's a mix of diplomacy and science and technology and seeing all the benefits for humanity, for our main mission of nuclear explosion monitoring, but also for things like tsunami warning and climate change. The data is really powerful. It's worth keeping in mind that the treaty will only come into force when all 44 Annex II countries ratify it. Ratifying is the next step after a signature. It is the final formal commitment that binds the signatory to the terms of a treaty. China, Egypt, Iran, Israel, the Russian Federation and the United States have signed but have not yet ratified it. DPRK, India and Pakistan have neither signed nor ratified it. In November 2023, the Russian Federation revoked its ratification of the treaty, and so there are now nine Annex II states that need to ratify. The fact that nuclear tests are so rare now tells us something fundamental about how transparent data can be a force for good in our world. It can create real accountability and not just lip service. I think the work that CTBTO is doing is amazing, and it was brilliant to have Megan break down the nuts and bolts of the organisation. Business ecosystems are not new. What is new is that they are becoming increasingly data-empowered. To realise complex opportunities, we need innovation beyond boundaries, democratised information and close collaboration between diverse players. Collaborative, data-empowered, borderless innovation is how we embrace a world of exponential change. Thanks for listening to Data Today, brought to you by Zulka. I've been your host, Dan Klein. 
For more information on Zorka's work, please visit our website.